Welcome to the podcast. I'm Shannon, your beer mistress. I'm Ian. I'm Jason. Welcome to the Micro Brew Review. Uh, this is episode two, and today we have something a little out of the ordinary for you. Not only do we have our featured beer of the week, which is a delicious Abita Abbey Ale, but we are also going to enlighten you about a recent experience that we had that was pretty fantastic. Yesterday, we learned how to be a home brewer. Yep. How, do we, uh, how do we come about learning how to become a home brewer? Why don't you tell us a little bit about this guy? Well, I know, because you, know, you just walk around meeting friends who have random talents. Back in my performing days, I met and hit it off with a, a great actor named Ryan, and he always seemed to have a fantastic supply of good beer, but it wasn't in it wasn't in the fridge and labeled or in a way that you would recognize. And finally, I asked him where he comes about uh, being a poor actor with such a great endless supply. And he said that his dad is a home brewer, which made me a little skeptical because I appreciate brewing as a hobby. And I think it's something that is definitely a, a talent and an art in its own right. However, I have met so many brewers who are not exactly gifted in that realm uh, and they do it for a living. So what are the chances that someone who does it as a hobby and, and doesn't get to dedicate so much time to it is going to be quite uh, that skilled? And I learned very quickly from, from stealing sips of Ryan's stash that uh, his dad really knew what he was doing. Well, uh, I will say that I had some skepticism myself going into uh, yesterday's event, uh, never having met the guy, never having had any of his beer at all or anything like that. I thought, oh, home brewer, yeah, okay, I hear he's good, but what, is, what does that really mean? You know, is it, is it good for a homebrew? Is it, like, better than Coors? Because I don't think that's that hard. But I was very pleasantly surprised with the, the depth of his knowledge and, and the skill in the field, I think. I'm sure being greeted at the curb by a man in a kilt probably just reinforced some of your skepticism <laughs> at first. What, what ended up happening was I am extra particular when it comes to my seasonal beers, especially pumpkin ale. And mm -hmm. I know that there are those among you, even in my immediate vicinity right now, who are a little put off by certain flavors in beer, fruit being one of them, um, certain vegetables being another. But as a, as a woman who loves the summer, the one thing that I am willing to say I love about the fall is a lot of the beers. And one of, one of the moments that is the most spectacular for me is that first sip of pumpkin ale that just, it tastes like the spices and Thanksgiving and all of that. And sadly, as pumpkin ales are catching on, I think that they are, they're becoming less good in a lot of ways. Uh, maybe the percentage of them that is delicious is decreasing um, because so many of them brew with pumpkin and it ends there. You know, you're not, right. you're not getting the spices, you're not getting the flavors. It's like roasted pumpkin seed or something like that. It's not nearly as good as when you're actually getting all the other spices in there as well. Exactly. I mean, pumpkin seeds have their own time and place, but they really don't do a lot for a beer. And the first time I tried Verlin's pumpkin ale, Verlin is Ryan's dad, sorry. Um, I was like, all right, I've got to meet this man. <laughs> like, this seems perfect to me. Uh, I, he must understand what he's doing if he can do it this well. So from then on, I think I think I visited his his little brew shop in his basement two or three times, and he is a big fan of ours. He listens to the podcast, watches the videos, and he has followed my blog for I think at least a year now, and is really great about leaving feedback and stuff. So Excellent. when I asked him if we could come over for a brewing lesson, he was very enthusiastic. Well, I think it was really nice to have that that past history going into it. Uh, it made it much more relaxed atmosphere, I think, and uh, a little less. Uh, Less schooling, but still a great education. 
as it were. Never having uh, homebrewed myself, I learned a whole lot about it. I learned that it's probably a lot harder than I ever thought it was. I think part of my brain was just like, yeah, you just throw some stuff together and then you get beer. Well, and like he said, there's several different ways that you can make beer at home. And a lot of new brewers do what they call the extract brewing, where you know they go to their shop and they buy concentrate of the different flavors that they want to put together. And it's very much like a recipe, like if you're making a souffle, sure. you know, you add X after 10 minutes and then you bring it up to a boil and then add Y and leave it go five minutes. And um, that definitely can produce some good tasting beer, but there's not a lot of freedoms involved. Or control. Exactly. You you know pretty much exactly what it's going to taste like as long as you follow that formula. And Berlin takes it to the next step and he does the whole grain brewing. Mm -hmm. So I think what made it really neat, and Jason's got a great palate for this, so I loved watching his face during this process, is he actually let us taste the raw grain, like right. the malts. So we tried the pale ale malt, we tried the two row. He is not a, a huge fan of the six row, so he doesn't really use that in his stuff. But he chocolate malt, the peat smoke malt, all these things that you're thinking, oh, good grief. But he let us try it raw, mm -hmm. and all of a sudden I'm going, oh, now I want to try the final beer. I want to know if I can taste and this. And we got to. That's true. <laughs> what were the chances that that's what he had on tap? Yeah, it was uh, pretty fortuitous and... Uh... And really good. And really delicious, yeah. yeah. It was a, a great IPA, a double IPA. And and, as yet uh, unnamed IPA. Yes. We threw out a lot of names because we were very happy when we sampled <laughs> that. And then uh, he had the smoked porter on tap as well. So that was very delicious. And the smoked porter is what we made yesterday. And originally the recipe was inspired by stone mm -hmm. smoked porter. But the, the first time he made it, he sort of recreated the stone version. And he said, okay, you know, that's what I bought and that makes sense. But then he wanted to sort of make it more his own because he really does like the dark if you mm -hmm. couldn't tell by looking at his inventory of yeah also the scotches and stuff that he seemed to like and talk about and scotch tends to have that peaty smoky flavor to it a lot of the time right so that's that's what we made yesterday and i don't think any of us could you know go back today and recreate it <laughs> <laughs> no i would certainly not be able to uh to do that today but i think i learned also just a lot about home brewing as an art and as a hobby. Mm -hmm. I don't think I realized that there were sort of homebrew clubs or associations and it, it makes a lot of sense because some of the ingredients that they need, some of the uh, materials that they need are very specialized. So if they can go together as a group, you know, and buy them cheaper or sort of create things by hand to right. help one yeah, another. Yeah, they seem to make a lot of stuff and almost it seems like everyone in the group had some forte that they were good at working wood or metal or something and between all of them they could all kind of build their own homebrew kits um, on the cheap and you know they, they worked well and, and and just that community of support I think is really impressive. Um, I feel there's two ways you can go about it. One is like this is my, my stuff and I don't want anyone to know about it and I brew it and they're my secrets and the other is like hey look what I found out let me share it with you. And I think that's much more fun. Well, and naturally, every time they get together for a homebrew meeting, everyone's got to bring their latest batch. Sure. So <laughs> it really brings together a community to get to share in a good beer that your neighbor made. We're too. sitting around drinking beer right now, and uh, they get to do that all the time with their own new supplies and new adventures. And... Now, do you think that's just brewing culture in general, the whole, you know, hey, look what I found and I'm sharing? Or do you think there are a lot of folks who are very protective of it who aren't necessarily selling it, you know? I feel like we never heard, would hear about those people because they're so protective of it. And I know just from talking to people that have talked with brewers, uh, professional brewers, I should say with air quotes, since you can't see me, that they seem to be very, very much like, hey, let's talk. Let me, oh, what do you use? You use that? Oh, we use this. It's, uh, you know, so I think, I think it's a very sharing culture, uh, beer wise, at least. I think truly what they want to do is create good beer and get the word out and, you know, convert 
people who maybe only drink ah, everything he, he uses to describe mass market American beers is just a slightly, slightly inappropriate, so I won't say it, but they, they want to convert those, those regular American beer drinkers, and if it is by sharing the information and by um, you know, trading techniques and things, they're, they're more than willing. And sure. from listening to him talk, they go to a lot of regional brew events and brew fests and things like that. And it's neat that they let the homebrewers have a stand there. I mean, I'm sure they, you know, they pay their registration fee or whatever. Sure. But since you're not selling at a brew fest, they're allowed to do it legally. And he seems to really enjoy it because then he goes from stand to stand and talks to the brewers to learn more about what it is they're doing. So even those professional brewers are more than willing to, to share or to just sort of revel. Sometimes I think they like finding someone else who knows. Oh yeah, absolutely. I think that's true in, in most cultures of pretty much anything. You find people that share that knowledge and passion and you want to talk to them about it. You don't necessarily want to you know, guard that secret. You want to share it because it's exciting and it's new and oh, have you tried this kind of grain instead because I find that it makes this happen. So that seems to be the community that exists and I think that's really great. They're artisans yes. in their own right. and. And like he said, a lot of good craft brewers, and I don't want to just say home brewers in this case, but they're also very good cooks because they have great palates and they can, I mean, we let him sample an IPA. It was the Old Dominion. Old Dominion Hop Mountain. All right. And it, when we read the bottle, it said it had four different kinds of hops in it. Well, there he, you know, just took a few he, samples. He got two from the smell. Two from the smell. And then I think... He named a third and guessed a fourth and then went online to verify. So so after this, I think I would definitely seek out events that I know have homebrewers at them just to try new stuff. Well, they also seem to do more creative stuff. He was mentioning some of the brewers that were there, uh, the, the professional ones, the ones that we all see in the store, and how they always tend to bring the same stuff, like Yingling comes with lager and Lancaster comes with their summer wheat. Uh, and it's all the stuff that we can find at the store or on tap pretty much anywhere, anytime. So it's not that exciting to try something new, but to have all these homebrewers who pretty much everything they do is something new, something that they're inventing or putting a new spin on. That sounds great. I love to try new beers. Anytime I go somewhere, if I see something new that looks interesting, I'm going to try that. Well, and I think it helps. Like yesterday, we spent right around five and a half, six hours making the smoked porter. That... All of that time, not counting now, you know, we've got to ferment it and everything else, um, was to make a sextal, mm -hmm. which is, I guess, half of a keg. A sixtal, it's a, a sixth of a keg. Or, or no, it's a... Sixth of a barrel. Sixth of a barrel, right. And a keg is a half barrel. Half barrel. Right. So, holy cow measurements that, you know... Math at this time of day? No. But if you're only making a sextal of something, then all of a sudden you know, you have a little more freedom. If you know that you don't need to, you know, you're not a big brewery and you don't need to make a batch that has... Or 130,000 barrels of it. Exactly. So I think that was a great opportunity. And especially now as the, the season is changing, it looks like it's going to be easier for him to brew because, you know, you need to get the water up to temperature to create your mash. Once everything is boiled and done its thing, then you need to get it back down to temperature right. before the yeast goes crazy. Um, it was tough to do outside in August, but I think once the weather starts to cool, then he'll be able to cool down. Unless it gets too cold, and then he can't get the stuff hot enough. Right. <laughs> there's, there's certainly a lot that goes into it, uh, and the elements do tend to have an effect, although they're not necessarily limiting. They, they help or hurt, depending, but they never would stop brewing from happening. Right. Well, and he is starting to bring me around on mead. Um, I am admittedly not a mead lover as a whole. There are some that I've had along the way that I do enjoy. 
And from what we were talking, he actually had a really great understanding of the history of beer. And he said, we, we talked about that documentary we saw on Netflix, the How Beer Saved the World, which is, I think, wildly entertaining. It's slightly flawed in some of its logic, but it was really great to watch. I, and think, I think there are a lot of flaws in the logic right. that they use in that one. For uh, example. They, they stretch. <laughs> they stretch quite a bit in their, you know, could this be basically what saved all of civilization by being drinkable antibiotic well it helped maybe but it didn't right. save all of humanity it's, it's it would have actually created a super race otherwise that's true yeah. only the strong lived it did provide a good optic for which to view things like the whole breadbasket of civilization tigris euphrates uh, you know they they settled in that area because of, of the ability to farm well you know later it comes up well what they wanted to farm was their wheat and their barley so they could make their beer uh, and likewise with the pilgrims coming over and you can find all the rest you can find a deer walking around you know? <laughs> you're not going to find wheat and barley just you know <laughs> nice you can camp. find it but not enough <laughs> not enough for all the beer you want to drink we're hunting beer today <laughs> <laughs> that would be great i, I would do this, that the six point buck i mean <laughs> but did you get any wheat <laughs> No. Well, likewise, though, with the pilgrims, you know, hindsight, but they say that the pilgrims landed at Plymouth Rock because they were out of beer and they intended to go further south. And I'm thinking, oh, guys, if you had known how cold it was going to get up there in Massachusetts, you might have just drank water for a couple days to get a little further south. Mm, it's not safe. You can't drink water. I know. But I think it was a great, a lot of times I equate the sediment at the bottom of my bottle with okay, I know this is good for me and I know it went into the flavor, but, you know, do I really want to pour it in or how do I feel? But to see, you know, starting from the grain and then mashing it down and then creating, I, Jason kept saying, oh, this makes me want grape nuts. And right. I, I kept thinking, oh, it reminds me of a really healthy oatmeal. <laughs> um, but to equate that full product with what is sitting at the bottom of my beer glass sometimes, I was like, wow, it I makes get you feel it a lot better about drinking it now. It does, though. You're like, oh, it's like oatmeal basically all of a sudden <laughs> i i understood the monks who were fasting who said oh well if i'm not allowed to eat anything then i'm just going to drink this liquid nutrition right that just happens to have the bonus effect of also <laughs> making me really mellow and happy which means i've forgotten how hungry i am <laughs> i suppose i i thought you were going to say something more about being in a monastery without women for the rest of your <laughs> life <laughs> hunger sure that too all right so that was that was lovely and i'm sure we'll reference that more both during this episode and future episodes, because I do believe or when we do it again. that when we brew again, when we, well, he says he brews at least twice a month. So I'm sure anytime you wanted to show up on his doorstep, lie on the wall, maybe just watch, bring some cheese. Not entirely beer related, but still worth noting is yesterday Ian tried his first Scotch egg. I did, and I should say eggs because, of course, you can never you have. Should this probably one. tell people what that is. Yes, well, and I do think I like to think that I'm a fairly cultured individual, I have a, a good food palate, and it wasn't until I met you that I'd heard of a scotch egg and it wasn't until yesterday that i finally ate one so well it is oh it is breakfast on the go at its best if mcdonald's got a hold of this i can only imagine don't tell them <laughs> <laughs> um, but it is a hard-boiled egg that is then uh, wrapped in sausage breaded and deep fried so i think the that only delicious the only thing that kept ian from having more was as he looked at like the third or fourth one he said oh my gosh my cholesterol hates me right now <laughs> but they worth every bite i don't I, they're either well, Scottish or Irish, I don't know. I think I've only actually had them in Ireland. I don't, we've never been to Scotland, so I couldn't say. But it's great because it's portable. Sometimes I'll make a batch, you know, I'll make a dozen eggs. And then... Um, great because it's deep fried. 
Yeah, of course, delicious. Once it's cooked, though, you just pop it in the oven. You just need to get the outside crispy again. Uh, our British friends, when we go for Christmas, uh, they ask for them all the time, and we don't even get past the appetizer course. You know, they have to push off the turkey because everybody polished off. Fills up on scotch on eggs. Scotch <laughs> eggs. So, I mean, it's pretty simple, all things considered. It's a little labor-intensive. but I have a deep fryer. Well, but see, but I didn't. This time, I actually made it on my stove in a pan. It was full of soil. So it, it all depends, but I recommend them to the beer lovers out there. I think it's a great thing to offer as a snack, you know, a great, you know, game day party or something like that because it absorbs the beer pretty well. It's, you know, it's not just chips and salsa. There's, there's some serious sustenance there. So. Some good protein. Yes. So I would like to just take a minute to highlight the Abita Abbey Ale that Absolutely. we are drinking right now. Um, Abita is out of the south, isn't it? Louisiana. Fantastic. 30 miles from New Orleans. So that makes sense why you said when you were down in New Orleans. Yes, that it they was... have it kind of everywhere. It's actually, I did not find many places in New Orleans, who's not necessarily known for their beer, uh, that had much beer that wasn't of the hand mars mass-marketed variety. Uh, but there was Abita. I had some friends that went to Tulane down there. We were down there for a bachelor party. They were, uh, uh, their favorite was the Purple Haze, which is one of their best-selling beers at Abita. I didn't love that one. I have to be honest. Well, it's a it's a, a raspberry beer. Oh, a raspberry that could lager, be why. Basically, okay. Um, so there's some some fruit thrown in there, which gives it its, its purplish color, as well as a little bit of that fruity flavor. But well, and I know that this is probably the wrong reason to buy a beer, but this the label looks so pretty. It does, and it's a beautiful 22 ounce bottle. It's an 8% ABV. And it cost $4.29 at my grocery store. And it was right next to the Allagash. So it made mm. me think, oh, it might be of a similar style as the Allagash. And or alphabetically, Abita and Allagash. <laughs> <laughs> Just so happened to work out that way. Or Belgian stylish. But for that price, I was willing to take the risk. Yes. And I did not I did remember you mentioning Abita when you were down in New Orleans. So I wanted to give it a try. But what do you think? I think it's very nice. It's darker than I was expecting, which is never really a bad surprise in my world. Fair enough. I think it's about as dark as I was expecting, okay. but more from, I guess, the Chimay Red standpoint, it's a very similar color that came out. It's nice. It's a little it's a little caramely. It's a little sweet. Definitely I has that sweetness to it. don't know that I would want to drink a whole bottle on my own. I'm glad that we're sharing. It would depend on the day. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. So um, while we're sipping on that, I wanted to go over, I wanted to see how well you guys are paying attention yesterday during uh -oh. our brewing lesson, because thankfully... Berlin is a very patient man, so as we were brewing, I, I definitely felt like a Today Show host, um, quizzing. Flying him with questions. I, I did, I mean, and amazingly is he had an answer for all of them, and some of my questions were completely out of left field, but it's just, it followed my train of thought. So we did get to see his hops collection. He grows mm -hmm. hops against the uh, side of his garage, and they are unbelievable. Like it was really cool to see, you know, a hops flower because I've seen them drawn on the side of many a bottle and I've seen them dried when I've gone on some brewery tours and things, but to see the that real hops flower was kind of fantastic. And he kept saying that hops is a weed. And I was wondering if you know if that is indeed true or false that hops is a weed. Uh, I don't think it's actually a weed. I think it's a, a vine more. It's a, a perennial plant. It's true. I actually think that when he was saying it, what he meant was more the way that it grows. It grows like a weed. It, it yes. grows very fast. Uh, it does have that, that vine quality, which is often associated with weeds. And it will grow um, up to 35 feet if you let them. Yeah. And when they... Hops is now almost universally what is used in beer. But before they used hops, they used a lot of other things, many of which were weeds. Uh, 
to give that bitter flavor. They would use dandelion and heather and stuff like that. So, uh, so why did the price of hops increase so significantly recently? I think that there's a combination of reasons. First off, brewing is taking off like crazy around the country, not just small breweries, but these home breweries and things like that. So it's, it's almost like soybeans, if you will. Um, no, this is the farm girl in me coming out. But back in the day, uh, nobody bothered making soybeans because who was going to eat them? They're boring. But as soon as the whole healthy eating, vegetarian, whatnot kicked off, uh, all, soybeans were worth more than tobacco to a farmer in terms of being able to sort of make the fake meat and things out of them. Um, hops was the same way. There was only a few places. He said hops originated in Germany. So that is sort of the climate that you want to go to when you're growing your hops but there were only a few places around the country that grew hops a lot of them were in california so suddenly there was a huge demand for this limited amount of product and at the same time it was one year i believe maybe three or four years ago that he said something got in them you know locusts or mites or, or some kind of pest got into the hop supply so it put it even more in demand because what was usable was uh, even lower and that was also the same year that a warehouse had burned down. That's true. I remember, I kept thinking about what that fire must have smelled like to have to have hops on fire. So most of the uh, most of that year's stock basically was gone, either infected or burned. And they're very expensive per pound, but you have to realize that when most brewers buy their hops, they're already dried. Right. So, so a pound is a lot of hops. It's crazy. I think it's worth noting that when you read the side of your bottles or the descriptions of some of the IPAs that you're drinking, that some of the batches. 25 pounds of hops yeah or whatever. i cannot imagine the sheer volume of hops that would have been involved in, in in 25 pounds something also fun do you remember what hops that begin with the letter c have in common i do and this was a great revelation for me uh because i very much enjoy citrus ipas and the cascade the centennial hop they have the citra they are the ones that are citrus flavored so all the sea termed american ones have that citrus flavor to them which is what i seek out when i'm looking for a delicious ipa i prefer that over the sweet ipas that are sometimes out there so now i can look and say oh it's this kind of hops i bet i'll like it actually that was revolutionary for me and i or i'm sure the relevatory is probably the correct word but I, it never crossed my mind, like Founder Centennial IPA or Weyerbacher Double Simcoe. Mm -hmm. They are telling actually, you. Yeah, the type of hops that they've used. Right. The strain. And I like the, I like the Centennial. I like the Citra. I really am not into the Simcoe. It's just a little more, it's bitter with, without the sweetness, without the citrus. Um, but I think Weyerbacher does pretty good. It could be because it's a double. You know, it's got more flavor to it naturally. Uh, but all of a sudden, I think I'm going to look. A little more closely at those names. I really I, am. And then maybe start to to define, oh, I really do like the Cascade. I don't like the Simcoe. I do like this. Uh, and then you'll have a much better grasp of when you're at a bar and you see something on tap and it's brewed with this kind of hops. You can go, oh, well, chances are I'll like that one. Or I won't because it's got that hop in it that I don't really like. I think it also added some helpful perspective for me in that I always felt when I was reading a description that, oh, you know, if this company decided to blend their hops and they went with four different varieties or whatever, I thought it was sort of cheapening it more like a, well, come on, commit to it. Or did you not have everything in stock you needed to make this one kind? And from listening to him talk about what different hops bring to the table, it gave me that perspective of, okay, so maybe they're really just more advanced if they're True. mixing and maybe they're trying to pull a certain flavor You're out of it. creating a, a hybrid hop almost by, by mixing all those kinds and pulling different flavors and again, it depends when you add the hops as to what you're getting based on flavor, aroma, and uh, color, color, usually. 
But the same is true for the grain going back. You know, there was just the base grain that didn't do much other than create well, the beer. Well, created the, the sugar that right. creates the fermentation and the alcohol. And then tasting, like, the chocolate grains and the peat moss smoked grain. That was crazy. Mm-hmm. That was really nice. That was that was scotch right there. It was, like, chewing on a little aged scotch. It was pretty nice. All right, my next question. Maybe not the classiest question I ever asked, but it's a true or false question. False. Hops is a cousin of hemp and marijuana. It's true. It is true, Jason. I mean, that's the Tell one, us more. That's the one nugget. <laughs> I don't know anymore. You guys did all the research. <laughs> <laughs> that's the one nugget he learned from yesterday. He's like, oh, I'll, I'll put well, what, what I found interesting about it was when you're actually looking at the hop. Is it actually called a flower or a bud? It's I, The hop is the female flower. Okay. Yeah. So when you peel back the leaves, you can actually see the little, not dusty bit, but it, the little... I uh, thought it was pollen at yellow, first. Yeah. Like a powder. Nugget or whatever. And yeah. it just reminded me of the stuff that I've seen on marijuana where that's this is what they're looking for, essentially. You right. Know, they're just trying to get that type of stuff out of it, so... And the longer it dried, the more that the, the yellow started to appear. And he said it was actually a gland inside there that was secreting that. Well, I mean, it makes a certain amount of sense. We, we drink beer because it gets us a little... High, as it were, you yeah. know, it, it certainly changes our our general demeanor from something normal to something else, and other plant-based things do the same thing. Um, so it's it, it makes sense that those two would be related, in my mind at least. Well, but the what, what gets you happy from beer is the um, alcohol that comes out of the yeast, right? Right. So that's what changes your I don't know. Do, do the hops do that too, or what is the relationship there? I'm, I really truly believe the hops are... Hops are just a bittering flavor, flavor agent. They're making smell. the beer taste better, if yeah. you will. Um, because back before hops were really used all of the time, early brewers used things like rosemary, ginger, juniper, coriander, which you still taste. And they're still using. Yes, and you can still get that in certain beers, but especially now in America, hops is sort of... I think our palate... We're a hop-heavy hop country. We are, for sure, and... I don't know. I think there's everything's got its place, and maybe the good breweries that are trying to recreate. Okay, I'm going to make a Belgian, or I'm going. Sure. To well, you've got places like Allagash, which is primarily a Belgian-style American brewing company, who takes a lot of liberties with their. I mean, they have a Belgian-style IPA. Right, because they want. I know it's delicious, uh, but they want to take the the Belgian style that they love and are committed and to and incorporate it into a hop. Market basically something that the Americans will drink yeah. absolutely so it makes a lot of and fun. I love Belgians so they don't need to sell me on anything necessarily but it's it's great that they're doing it I love the experimentation that comes out of stuff like that the different kinds and styles that are arriving much like mixing different strains of hops to get certain flavors it's taking vastly different types of, of brews and saying oh yeah well you know I really like IPAs I also really like Belgians what happens if I make a Belgian style IPA I have to admit that as much as I sat back yesterday and said, you know what, I don't think I have the patience you know, to deal with this whole process and everything that's involved, the cook in me wants to try it. I want to, to learn the real intricacies. However, I can't imagine making a souffle and then waiting six weeks to try it. Sure. You know, so I'm just... Well, there's also the whole, the whole setup of it. Like, just to get started, you need a lot of gear. And that gear is an investment. It's a, an economic investment that you need to make. And you can't really make that if you're just going to do it, you know, twice a year for a right. beer. It's not... You can do it, sure, if that's what you want. And it's probably not worth it, though. You know, and he said he brews twice a month. So he's... he's making good on that investment and he's been doing it for eight years eight I think years he said. yeah so twice a month for eight years it's a lot of beer that he's made and he said he's never had a batch that he's had to thrown out uh, to throw out excuse me so that's but there, but there 
there have been batches that have not tasted all that great. And there's yes. the batch that's on his living room ceiling or dining room ceiling. <laughs> yeah. he, didn't, he didn't throw out. <laughs> it exploded. <laughs> but all things, I mean, it's definitely, they said it's cheaper. Yes. You're not going to be paying five, six, seven dollars a pint if you're making it yourself. But you've got but to But you are it. going to pay, you're going to pay all that five, six dollars up front. And so if you're brewing it often, then it will eventually be cheaper. Correct. But first you have to pay for everything else. You've got to pay it off. And that's another one of the differences between the extract brewing and the whole grain brewing we learned is that, you know, you can go to the brew store, buy the extract, and you might, this is, these numbers are totally out of the air, but, you know, it might come out to a dollar a pint. But if you can do the whole grain brewing, it might be 70 cents a pint. But again, the time difference that you're putting into it, you have to decide if it's worth it to Right, you. and he's been doing it for eight years, and he says he's gotten it down to five hours right. of brew, which means it was certainly longer than that to start. Uh, and you have to pay yourself for your own time. I'm, I'm always a big believer of that. Your time is worth it's one of the only commodities you have to sell. And it should be worth more than anything else that you own because right. it's your time and it's all you have. You only have a limited amount of it. And by all means, when you're doing it for fun, it's definitely something that okay, you know, I could go out and go bowling right now or I could go golfing right now and those things are going to cost me money and this is what I do for fun. All right, it's my hobby. But I just don't know ultimately. I don't think I could do it twice a month, especially because he said because of the time investment, you don't come home from work and do it on a Tuesday night. You know, right. you're giving up a weekend. It's a, it's a day off that you are using to brew, which again, it's a hobby for him. He enjoys doing it. I could imagine myself enjoying doing it as well. However, it's a lot of time and I don't have a lot of free time. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe if it was like a party atmosphere where all my friends came over and, and brought me cheese and stuff, I might might be a little more inclined to... Like your Sunday Walking Dead yes, zombie exactly. parties. Yeah, exactly. That's, you know, I, I throw a little bit of effort into that. I always make sure that there's food and, and drink available for my friends. But that's me hosting a party and that's, for me, cathartic. So. All right. Do you actually theme what's going on during that party? Like, are uh, the things to eat zombie related? Or in the usually? beginning, I certainly did. I made some, some zombie drinks. What the... One of them was blue, wasn't it? It was kind of like this sickly green color, really. So I have never seen like, it. I've only heard tales. It lived on long after the party. <laughs> pretty tasty, actually. I'd, I'd have to find the recipe again. I like the hot dog bar day. It was pretty awesome. Yeah, so there's the themes don't necessarily have anything to do with zombies, but I do try to have a, a spread that yeah. can feed 10 people. Tell or, me, even if you're not a cook, you can cook up some hot dogs. And we did like a beer cheese sauce. The beer cheese sauce. And, like, some, uh, chili and some jalapenos cooked up. It's pretty epic hot dog bar I because almost i mean i try to eat healthy but we we cooked the hot dogs and bacon fat so i mean it was delicious and then you pile enough awesome on top of any hot dog yeah. and who's not going to eat that so definitely not zombie I would, related i would eat it yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i'm sure you would i'm sure you would all right so let's move on to listener questions becoming one of my favorite parts of the day um, today we have two to choose from. Maybe we'll get to both, depending on time. Uh, we have Ashley and we have Wilson from Twitter. So Ashley emailed and uh, Wilson tweeted. Let's take Wilson. Wilson yeah. wants to know... Our, dear, new, our new friend Wilson. Dear beer mistress, what beer goes best with Chinese food? Which, of course, I could not answer because I had to first... Yeah, ask. It depends on the Chinese food. Exactly. Absolutely. Uh, I think that's, that's part of our whole mission here is to say that you can pair pretty much any... Any food and beer, you can find a pairing for it, but the topic needs to be a little more specific. And maybe it was the 140 characters that was keeping him yeah. limited. I definitely mm. get that. But and, Jason... also, and also, I mean, if you're looking at takeout, something like that, a lot of places it is very similar. Yes. Yes, a lot of the it's, dishes it's are chicken very with brown sauce or beef with brown sauce or pork with... 
brown sauce. <laughs> it all shrimp does with... taste very similar. It's just a texture difference <laughs> yeah. for the most part. Yeah. But if you're getting good Chinese, it's quite different. Jason, for the world that does not yet know this about him, I would say it's one of his superpowers. He definitely has a Chinese food or Asian food almost palate that can really pick up the detail. He can. He has that Verlin hops palette you know, oh, a little, uh, but for asian spices <laughs> okay so you always say that and i never i i don't feel like i have that i feel like i just say what's blatantly on the tongue and then there which is why it's a superpower because it, what is blatantly well, the, on your tongue is not necessarily something that most other people will pick up but on. then there are lots of times where i'm really trying to pull out what something tastes like and i have no clue zero idea so i don't know i mean if, if you hand me a raspberry beer i'm gonna be able to say that tastes like raspberries if you hand me something that has just hints of raspberries I might not be as good at that. This from the man who, when we are in Canada tasting wine, goes, Is that lychee and petrol I taste? <laughs> Those words were not in your vocabulary five days ago. Like, wh where on earth did this come from? Just every, every wine in Canada tasted like, or in Niagara Falls tasted like lychee. It's true. So let's, let's actually answer Wilson's question. Um, Wilson, very legitimate question. We're glad that you asked. And the truth is... I hate to say it, it depends. Um, and it, what depends on is if you're having your, your general takeout, they're going to be there in 10 minutes and it's going to be swimming in brown sauce. And still delicious. Don't get me wrong. There's, I do love a nice Chinese takeout. And that always has its place. But that's going to be something very different than if you're having a nice sit-down Chinese um, dinner with, you know... Glass noodles and uh, chili Chilies oil. or kung pao and some kind of spice. Like, the kind of beer you're going to need is very different. Right. Do you need something to, to complement and tame the spice that's overpowering or do you need something a little more cooling? I'm gonna say this. I'm gonna say don't be afraid to go for, um, if it's spicy, something a little lighter and a little cooler. Well, which I think is why a lot of the traditional Chinese beers are very, very light. They're very refreshing, I would say. And the bubbles really clear your tongue. I mean, mm -hmm. it's no milk, let us say, but it really does a lot. Well, um, that carbonation is a great palate cleanser. It really does a lot to to wipe the palate. Uh, this, I'm going to go back to our first episode here, um, the, the webisode that we put out, and say um, the Dunkelweissens are going to be really great for this. The wheat beers, the Aventinas, and things like that mm -hmm. um, are really going to be... Um, Actually, this, this Abbey Owl. Probably that would have been great so for it, absolutely. Because the Abbey also had a, a pretty good effervescence mm -hmm. to it. So um, if, if you're going spicy, by all means, I would say go that way. Um, if you're talking more of your, your brown sauce or... Beef and broccoli. Yeah, exactly. Go ahead and you know live it up. You want an IPA? Go for it. You want an APA? Uh, that's American Pale Ale? Go for it. Uh, so all in all, I'm going to say you probably don't want a stout with it. You probably don't want a lawnmower beer, which we learned yesterday basically means like a light color beer under 6% ABV. Right. Leave your Budweiser at home, always, no matter what, Wilson, we're going to say. Don't even leave your Budweiser at home. Just leave it, leave it in the store. But Chinese, I think people don't think about Chinese with wine or beer. And, you know, with wine, they say do a nice gewürztraminer, or do something spicy. And I think the truth is the same for the beer is go ahead and don't think you can't have a nice punch of flavor in your beer. Go for it. Absolutely. So it's time to sort of wind down a little bit. I want to remind folks that we'll be back next week. Ashley, we'll get to you next week as well. Yes, I'm sorry, Ashley. Um, your Brewers you for your question is going to have to wait. But if anyone else has questions, yeah. you can email us at beermistress at dashingrogue.com. And in the interim, if you want to follow us on Twitter and see what we're eating, what we're drinking, and where we're hanging out, you can find me at beermistress, or you can find Ian. Dashing underscore rogue. 
And um, if there's anything else we can do for you, just find us at dashingrogue.com and we have a contact us page and you can send in your questions if you have pairings or anything you want to know. And until next time, I'm Shannon. I'm Ian. And I'm Jason. Thanks for joining us.